Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. Today I talk with Steve Fittick, whose name you probably recognize if you've ever picked up a Modern Drummer magazine, or gone to a PASIC convention, or seen or heard the Army Blues Big Band. In addition to his military role and profile as an author and clinician, Steve has stayed active as a leader and sideman on many civilian projects, both live and in the studio, and is in his 11th year as an artist-in-residence at Temple University in Philadelphia. He lives in Annapolis, Maryland, which enables him to work an entire East Coast region that includes Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philly, and New York. If you want to learn more about Working Drummer Podcast and what we do or just who the hell me, Matt, and Mike are, please visit WorkingDrummer.net. We've got t-shirts and stickers for sale there if you need more drum swag in your life. There's also some bonus content, which you can access by donating to our Patreon campaign. If you see fit to help us out with a little money every month, and when I say a little, I mean you can literally just donate a dollar a month, there's a link on our website, or you can go to Patreon.com slash WorkingDrummer. We've got some cool incentives there as a thank you to anyone and everyone who donates to help sustain Working Drummer Podcast. So just to give you a heads up, my Skype connection with Steve was a little bit choppy at times, uh, but I encourage you to hang in there. It's well worth it. Steve spoke really insightfully about all aspects of his career, but especially his musical development in his late teens and early 20s, studying with Ed Sof and Joe Morello. Uh, We talk a lot about professional development on Working Drummer, but Steve did a a deep dive into the years he spent on his technical and musical development and how he really laid a solid foundation for himself before worrying about the professional aspects of music. So here we go with Steve Fittick. So if if you would just start by telling us exactly where you live and uh, and what you what you get up to in the in the surrounding area there. So I live outside of uh, an Annapolis, Maryland, about halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's a strong there's a strong scene right here in the Baltimore, D.C. area. Lots of great musicians. Uh, of course, the military bands are stationed right here in the Washington, D.C. area. The Airmen of Note, yeah, uh, the Navy Commodores, the Jazz Ambassadors, mm-hmm. and then the Ar- the Army Blues, which is a a 17-piece big band that I just recently retired from in May mm-hmm. of this year after playing with uh, that group for over 20 years. Wow. And um, and in addition to that, and in addition to working different, with different groups around uh, Baltimore and Washington, I teach part-time. I'm an artist in residence at uh, Temple University in their jazz studies department. Mm-hmm. And in addition to Temple and playing gigs around the Philadelphia area, uh, I get up to New York from time to time and work with my own group, The Parlor Project. And mm-hmm. we have uh, two records out on a, a jazz label in California, in Los Angeles, called Positone Records. And I've had the good fortune of recording on a number of Positone uh, label records um, over the past three or four years. Um, they'll come to New York about twice a year and uh, put together different different groups to support different leaders um, that are 
that are that are recording that week or over those two weeks and usually in September or in January. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's yeah, it's been a good experience. Um, and in the mid Atlantic area where, where I'm from here, um, whether it's in DC or Baltimore or Philly or New York, there's just a, a good strong a good strong scene with lots of lots of great musicians. Um, a really good strong grassroots swell of, of players and uh, guys that are hungry to play. A lot of great young players and uh, yeah, a lot of schools around there, right? Yeah, I mean, just just outside of uh, Baltimore and uh, DC, there's University of Maryland, of course Temple in Philly, U Arts in Philadelphia. There's a slew of small schools and also large schools in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's certainly not a shortage of, of great musicians that are hungry and and more than willing to play. Yeah, yeah. And is that the area that you grew up in? I grew up in uh, a small coal town in northeastern Pennsylvania, not, not far from the Poconos, uh, just south of Scranton, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Wilkesbury is the town, and um, that's where I that's where I, I began my playing uh, from a very young age. My father really encouraged music. He um, was a tool and die maker. He worked for over thirty years at Topps Chewing Gum. Huh. Uh, he. he um, he worked on the machinery that cut the baseball cards and wrapped the bazooka bubble gum and the ring pops. Wow. And uh, so he did that 40 plus hours a week. But in addition, he had a band and they would play five, six nights a week when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, club dates and wedding receptions and anniversary parties and such. And when I was seven and eight years old, they would take me out on these gigs, these four hour uh, engagements, and I would sit on his saxophone case. He was a tenor saxophonist, and I would sit on his saxophone case and listen to his band perform for the four-hour engagement. And then at the end of the night, he would allow me to come up and play, you know, one or two tunes at the end of the night, maybe Wipe Out or something <laughs> from the 1970s, you know, because I was sort of raised on radio, 1970s radio, and so I would just learn a, the beat or beats or fills from a specific tune and sit in with the band. When I was seven and eight years old, after a couple of years of sitting in and going to rehearsals, I began subbing for my father's drummer when I was about nine or ten. Wow. And so that experience from a very young age, being around, you know, musicians that were doing it for the love of it, they they weren't full time musicians. Mm-hmm. They, they had day jobs in factories. The area of the country I grew up in, northeastern Pennsylvania, was uh, and still is a very, very blue collar, uh, you know, part of the United States. Uh, a lot of factory workers, um, just really a good, strong, hard work ethic mm-hmm. instilled from generation to generation to generation. Uh, you know, both of my grandparents were coal miners. Wow. And uh, and so, um, you know, so from being in that environment and, uh, you know, being around these musicians that would come over to my house when I was very, very young and rehearse. And none of these musicians can read music. They would just put on the 45 or the 33 and they would listen to their part and they would figure out their part and they would get together and play. And I just noticed from a very, very young age how much fun these men were having just being together, getting together, working out their part and yeah. trying to figure out how it all worked and, 
and sound and try to sound as as close as they could to the recording and make it feel right and and sound like a band and uh just that joy of being together and playing uh, really rubbed off on me and that early, early experience is in my opinion the reason why i wanted to become a professional musician in the first place yeah i was going to ask you know was there a was there a point in your development when when you said you know i don't i don't have to have a regular job like my dad and and his his generation i can i can be a full time musician uh you know i just took it stepwise i really took it uh in baby steps i, I never really thought about it in terms of a five-year goal or, mm -hmm. you know, a two-year plan or a 10-year plan. I, I just, I guess I just wasn't really that organized about it. I, I love drums. My father uh, and my mother bought me my first set of drums when I was four years old. It was a 1966 Champagne Sparkle Ludwig Club Day kit. And Man. I still had it. Man, when you were four. Yeah, when I was four. <laughs> so I knew my, 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 my father... My father wanted all of my siblings to play, mm -hmm. and I was the only one that you know really stuck with it. They all tried an instrument in elementary band, one instrument or another, but I was the only one that really stuck with it long term. And um, so, I mean, I was playing to records, you know, when I was four and five years old, and forty fives. Yeah, and I started studying formally when I was seven with uh, a really great local drum set teacher in Northeastern PA. Uh, his name was Angelo Stella. And, uh, you know, he really helped me with my reading, my ability to read notation and learning my rudiments and learning my first beats. Mm -hmm. So he would write out, a, he would write out a waltz beat or, uh, you know, basic rock beats. And he would, he would make, he would connect s specific rudiments with beats. He would write out a paradiddle and, Say, well, if you take your right hand and put it on the hi-hat and put your left hand on the snare drum, you can break the paradiddle up this way. But he was very, very patient, and he also played piano. So all of these little beats that I was learning, these little one-measure uh, Polaroid type of grooves, mm -hmm. um, he would play piano and play tunes along with me. So that experience from a very young age coupled with uh, the experience of and the encouragement of my parents – and sitting in with my father's bands was really that really catapulted me and inspired me to want to keep practicing and and keep learning. And when then I started to get calls to go out and play gigs on my own and started working with club date bands at the age of 11. Wow. In that area. And, you know, ended up paying paying for college by playing gigs throughout Man. the Pocono Northeast. And um and and I, I never really turned down any gigs. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if the gig paid next to nothing, I played it. If the gig paid a little bit, of, I mean, I just felt like it was an honor. If someone was calling me to play, then they wanted me on that gig, then I would, I would do it. So I kept playing and I met more musicians, started eventually playing with better players. And by the time I was in high school, um, uh, you know, I, I decided, well, I want to go off to school for music, but my parents, uh, although they were very supportive of music, they couldn't really see the connection of being a musician and actually being able to, you know, have a family and, and pay your bills and because of the structure and, and, and their experience 
working in that area in that in that town right right and that's what i was going to ask like because of because of your parents experience you know was it was it 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 sounds like it was hard for them to put you know your your career ambition sort of in in context but was it also hard for you to conceptualize you know what a what a life as a professional musician looks like yeah because i i mean i really didn't know anyone that was playing and doing nothing but playing they were playing was also playing was secondary to their main vocation. Right. And, uh, you know, and being 18 years old and just finishing high school, um, a lot of my friends were going off either working in the factory or joining the military or some would go off to go, go off to college, but none of them were majoring in music. And so this would have been 1986. Mm -hmm. So, I stayed close by uh, in my in my hometown and went to the local university, the local college. Wilkes College was the name of the school, and I majored in music, but it was music education that I majored in. Yeah. So, after four years of being uh, a music major, um, bachelor's in music and education, I could have gone out and, and went on and become a, a music teacher, uh, elementary band, middle school band, or high school band, but. Uh, and I wasn't closed off to that either. I wasn't closed off to, to being a teacher either because I, I love teaching. I, I obviously love it because I'm, I'm teaching at, at the university level and yeah. teaching privately. But I just looked at it as, you know, there's, there's, there's a reason for everything. And, and we're here in this moment for a reason. And things happen. Good things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. I really i am a firm believer in that. And um, I, I just... I try to take opportunities at face value, and and I always try to 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 do my best and 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 have a good, hard, strong work ethic. But I've never been one to say, "Well, you know, I'm going to graduate from high school and I'm going to move to New York." Right. I just didn't have the confidence to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, on, to be perfectly honest, uh, or I'm going to graduate from college and I, I'm going to move to LA or move to Nashville, and and a lot of guys do. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of guys do that, and you know, more power to them. I've just, I've never been cut from that claw. Yeah, me neither. I, I, I prefer, I, I mean, I want to learn as much about music as I possibly can. I think of myself as a musician who plays drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so I, I try to learn as much about music that I'm playing. And I try to learn as much about the instrumentalists I'm working with so that I could better interpret the music and the musicians I'm playing with. And so that I can contribute to the conversation. You know, if I'm playing in a jazz quintet, I want to feel like I'm an equal member of that group. So if, if I'm going to have that type of respect in a group like that, then I'm going to need to know about chord progressions. I'm going to need to know about how to write and arrange tunes, original music or standards. Right. And that's, that's sort of my, that's that's been my mantra over the past, you know, ten years or so. Really getting more into how these other disciplines can affect my drumming, as opposed to going at it from strictly a technical aspect. Although at one point, that's really what I was about. I was about learning about the technique, about the fundamentals, about the mechanics of drumming. And two teachers that really changed my 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 course. Around the time I was 18, when I when I just started college, was Ed Sof, mm-hmm. 
and then Joe Morello. I, I started studying with Ed Soap when I was 18. I was a freshman at Wilkes College. It was a very traditional music program, very small music program, maybe 75 music majors. We had no jazz. <laughs> we had no ja- we had no jazz drumming. We had one jazz ensemble. That's it. Yeah. One big band that met once a week. That's it. And so I was. I found myself in this in this small program in my hometown, and there was no jazz drum set teacher. So there was a percussion teacher. So I learned timpani. I learned mallets, vibraphone, xylophone, marimba, timpani literature, concert snare drum. I did percussion recitals my sophomore, junior, and senior years in college. Yeah. And I was getting all this orche- all this orchestral uh, percussion experience. Which at the time, you know, I learned to appreciate it, but I, I really didn't want to be doing that. I wanted to be playing drums. So I had uh, a similar experience in college uh, where, you know, you spend most of your time learning all this orchestral percussion and, and solo marimba yeah. material. And, yep. uh, you know, you, you kind of project forward to where this is all going. Um, and I thought like, well, yeah, I could, I could be happy, you know, playing in a symphony orchestra someday or, uh, yeah, maybe I could be happy, like being kind of a solo marimba artist and doing clinics and concerts and maybe, but Mm -hmm. it just, it just didn't seem, uh, like a, a tangible sort of, um, option the way the way drum set always did because i you know i started yeah. on drum set it's where right. it's where my first love of music first came out and and all through college it was kind of in the back of my mind like would i would i rather be in a symphony orchestra than just play drum set for a living <laughs> um and i think i was kind of in denial about that for for a while but um was it was it did you turn a corner somewhere in college where you were like i don't i don't want to do this orchestral thing drum set is where it's at for me well, you know, I always felt like drumming gave me confidence throughout my elementary, middle, and high school years. It gave me an identity. Yes. It set it helped set me apart from all my other friends. Same. That were in school that were good at, you know, sports or or really good in school, just like in terms of grades and standardized testing, which I was never really good at any of those things. Right. Yeah. And and so, you know, this sort of gave me a sense of purpose and identity. And you know, I'm, I, I like to think that I'm an open-minded person. So when I went off to college, certainly studying orchestral snare drum and rudimental snare drum helped my uh, ability to read mm-hmm. notation at a much, much higher level. Um, learning mallets um, certainly helped me better understand chord progressions and um key centers yeah and 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 just theory in a in a more of a macro way yeah timpani you know look this is looking back at the time i didn't really i didn't really quite digest it this way but now looking back this is what i feel like i got out of it timpani certainly the the ability to um develop my ear Mm -hmm. and and be able to hear intervals and you know, in order to tune the drums and, and get them in, in pitch with, with the lower the lower instruments in the wind ensemble or, or the or the orchestra certainly helped my my ear training, um, and all of that that wad of spaghetti if you throw it on the wall you just at the time you don't know what's going to stick and what's going to fall off the wall you just don't know right, and and so but now that when I play. You know, I think some of the one attribute that I have in my in my playing in my quiver 
what other instrumentalists tell me is my ability to blend mm-hmm. with the rest of the band and my musical choices uh, in 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 reference to the instrumentalists I'm playing with in in accordance with the form of the tune, in accordance with the melody, in accordance with the vocalist. Um, I think all of that harkens back to all of that wind ensemble or orchestral experience playing those instruments. Yeah, um, yeah. I I have a similar, I don't I don't uh, I don't I have do a, it anymore, but I don't right. unfortunately I don't play that stuff anymore, but I still think back and I look back at the literature that I once played and thought, man, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I have a similar view of of, you know, my whole, whole orchestral training because even though like you I haven't played orchestral music in years and years, but um, I think it it really shaped the kind of drum set player that I became um, in in a way that you know if, if I had just been focused on drum set um, I, I would be a different type of drummer and that's that's not to say better or worse but if you're gonna if you're gonna kind of own your identity and and um, uh, love yourself and all that shit yeah. then <laughs> yeah you gotta kind of well, own, yeah, and, own your yeah, path you know I think of a, a good friend a good friend of mine who uh, we were at North Texas together when I started my masters. We were uh, we were in school together. Jim Riley of Rascal Flats. Yeah, and uh, Jim's a Jim's a great timpanist. When we were in North Texas together, he was playing timpani in the top percussion ensemble, and uh, now he's the musical director for Rascal Flats, and he has an incredible ear. Mm-hmm. And he he attributes that in part to. Um, his experience in practicing timpani and his years at, at North Texas and even before that, or someone like Ari Honig who can play melodies on the drums. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, his father was a vocal teacher in Philadelphia and he heard his, his father giving lessons in the room next door and, and all these different vocal warmups. And he applied some of those vocal warmups to the drums and trying to mirror the same melodic shape on the instrument pitch bending and using mallets and just all the creative things that he's doing. So, um, you know, just taking some of these experiences and trying to apply them to your path, uh, I think is, is really important. But my reality at the time was no drum set, uh, formal lessons in college and a lot of traditional orchestral percussion, uh, method books and literature yeah so i said well i got to start seeking out um drum set instruction i went to my first percussive arts society international convention which happened to be in dc back in 86 Mm -hmm. and you know at this convention was like four or five days of the greatest percussionists and drum set artists in the world i mean jack DeJanette was at that clinic steve gad was at that clinic yeah uh ed sof was at this clinic i mean just nexus mm-hmm. uh, was at this clinic. i mean it was just an incredible i mean it was like a like a light bulb going off every minute of of the four <laughs> days i was there yeah and uh i heard the old guard fife and drum corps play with steve gad and they played crazy army at the kennedy center Wow. You know, they had like a, a drum line right in the front, and, they, and he was playing Crazy Army. It was incredible. Uh, the Army Blues, which was the big band 10 years later I auditioned for, mm-hmm. was 
playing a concert that evening and Ed Sof was the guest artist and this would have been November of 86. And that was the first time I met Ed. I met him at the Yamaha booth in the, uh, in the convention hall and I heard him play with the blues and I, you know, it was completely melodic, very musical, very strong, lots of confidence shit out of the band. Right. And, um, I went up to him and, you know, sheepishly went up to him and asked him if he was accepting students and he gave me his card and he was living in New Haven, Connecticut at the time. Huh. And uh, so that's about a five and a half hour drive from Wilkesbury from my home. So it took about, you know, a, two or three months for me to, you know, garnish enough courage to give him a call. And I did. I finally called him and he said, yeah, come on up. So my parents drove me up for the first lesson. It was a five and a half hour drive. I took a two hour lesson and then a five and a half hour drive home. My parents did. Wow. And, uh, after that first lesson, I, I, I took additional lessons, maybe four or five additional lessons with him. And I, and I would drive up by myself. I would drive the distance, take the two hour lesson and drive home. And, uh, you know, he taught in the, uh, in the attic of his home in New Haven, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, really helped me understand, uh, you know, he was the first, the first teacher to really give me a strong fundamental outlook on technique, natural rebound, uh, use of the use of my fingers, my wrist, my form, my upper arm, the molar technique, yeah. uh, balance between my upper and lower appendages, working with a metronome religiously. I mean, these were concepts that he instilled in in these lessons. Even though I only took, you know, four or five two-hour lessons with him, these yeah. were concepts that he really hammered home. And at the last lesson, he said, "Well, look, I'm relocating. I, I got a job. Uh, I was asked to uh, be the head of drum studies at the University of North Texas. Yeah. And so I'm leaving. I'm leaving the Northeast, and I'm moving to Denton. Who are you going to study with? And I'm like, geez, I, I don't know." Uh, I, I couldn't really think of any other drummer that, you know, I was very dependent on teachers at this point. Mind right. You. Right. Uh, you know, I, all the information that I would get would be from my teachers. And I, I came, I was coming from a very method book intensive background. So my teachers would assign X number of pages. I would work on those pages. I would come back and hopefully I would get, uh, you know, a plus star on the top of my, on my, on the top of the method book and right. two thumbs up, you right. know, emoji, emoji, emoji. And then I'll go back <laughs> and I'll be inspired for the next week. And, um, today it's so much different. I mean, students can access, you know, this podcast, they can access YouTube, they, you know, information, the stream of information is immediate and it's constantly moving. Yeah. And at that time it was like, yeah, you had to go to this, you had to go to these these teachers, these master teachers. And, and I just didn't have enough experience. And he said, look, I'm leaving. You should contact Joe Morello. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that, you know, where you are right now in your development, I think he can really help take you to the next level. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was in 87. That was in uh, November of 87. And I started studying with Joe again. It took me several months to garnish up enough courage to call him too. And I did. And he lived a little closer. He lived in uh, Irvington, New Jersey, and he taught out of a drum shop in West Orange, Glenn Weber's uh, percussion studio. And Glenn Weber still has that percussion studio in West Orange. Oh, wow. And, and I would drive to his, uh, his studio, and I would take a two-hour lesson. 
oftentimes uh, after the lesson, we go out for dinner and drinks. And so I would do a two hour lesson and then hang out with Joe for another couple hours and just oh wow he would tell me so many incredible stories about his years with the day brubeck quartet and yeah. uh his experience in the music business and so uh i you know i studied with joe for you know consistently on a every two-week basis for five years consistently right. and then when i moved to the washington dc area i would go up about once a month once every six weeks and and, and uh he would, you know, check my hands and check my coordination and just, you know, basically I would go up for checkups just to make sure that I was, you know, developing and, um, so were the, uh, were, were the, um, things were working, were the, uh, non lesson time that you spent with Joe, uh, did that like, was that the beginning of you becoming less dependent on teachers, less dependent on method books? Because now you're starting to hear about, uh, you know, his experience in, in the music business and not just, you know, focusing on the microscopics of technique and method books and, and that kind of thing. I think so, but it was gradual and it was very, very slow. Mm. And, and Joe had a system, you know, he definitely had a system and he had a few books that he taught from, of course, he taught from stick control and accents and rebounds. And he had his own book, Master Studies, but he didn't really use a lot of books. He treated each student like an individual. Yeah. And uh, so the exercises that I was getting, you know, some of his other students would be getting different exercises. Mm -hmm. Or if I talked to Danny Gottlieb, you know, sometimes he would come in off the road from playing with, uh, you know, Manavishnu uh, or you know, the blues brothers he was touring with at that time, um, you know, he would come in and he would sit in on a lesson and he was getting different exercises also. So Joe had a way of listening to you play and giving you specific exercises that were going to take you to the next level very quickly, but in tandem help you with your confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which really, I mean, when you get hired to play, you're not getting hired to play because necessarily because of the way you play it. You're getting hired because of your confidence. Mm. I, I mean, I'm a firm believer of that. And I think Jimmy Cobb said that in an interview right. one time. I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, you get hired because of your confidence. Yeah. yeah. And some of the best drummers have, have, have you know, they're, they're the firecracker in the band. Right. You know, and so you have to be confident. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine the Dave Brubeck Quartet without the hookup of Eugene Wright and Joe Morello. Those two musicians made all of those time signatures feel even. Right. All those odd time signatures feel seamless and feel very, very even and very, very, very comfortable. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's a reason why Take Five was as popular as it was. Right, right. And as, as accessible as it was, it was because of the rhythm. I mean, the rhythm of that band, the heartbeat of that band was... Morello and Eugene Wright. Joe would say, Eugene Wright, that was my right hand. Yeah. You know, they were that, they were that in sync. So, you know, Joe's thing was, look, I'm going to fill your toolbox with the necessary uh, tools that you need to go play music. He, he would say to me, Fittick, I'm 40 years older than you are. <laughs> he said, the music that I'm into, you're probably not into, and the music you're into, I'm probably not into. 
So I'm going to give you the fundamentals so that you could go out and play anything you hear. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of how the older teachers taught, you know, Jim, Ta- Jim Chapin taught that way. Henry yeah. Adler taught that way. Maurice Spivak taught that way. All these old great teachers taught that way. Right. They and didn't it, teach style. They right. didn't teach style like drummer, drum teachers teach today. It Not seems, that that's a bad thing. It was just a different, different way of looking at it. And it seems like Ed Sof still teaches that way. Like if, if you look at the variety of drummers that have come out of North Texas, uh, you know, he's he's just equipped them all to do yeah. whatever they want, and they all want to do different stuff. Like that training manifests in so many different ways. Yeah, it's really incredible. I mean, it's like it's like that old adage that Duke Ellington once said. You know, there's two types of music, good and bad. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you know, I think as teachers, it's not up to us to judge specific musical styles. It's it's about trying to harness and inspire the gifts, the God-given gifts that these students all have. Mm-hmm. Everyone, has, everyone has a unique voice. And you just don't know what that student is going to end up doing. I mean, all you can do is try to encourage them through love and help them to get from point A to point B yeah. and, and, and be upfront and honest with them and with their ability. I mean, the more organized you are as a teacher with them, the quicker they're going to realize those goals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, uh, the modeling that Ed Sof and Joe Morello presented in lessons, I could never attain that sound. Mm-hmm. So every, every exercise they, every exercise they assigned, they demonstrated. Mm-hmm. And when in lessons with Joe, every exercise he assigned, he played it with me. In real time. So it was an hour on the pad with the metronome and it was an hour on the drums wow. and on the drums. It was exercises for coordination, uh, out of syncopation, uh, out of stick control, uh, out of the, uh, modern reading text in four, four Louis Belson's book, um, with that sofa was a heavy dose of the new breed, mm. um, by Gary Chester, uh, Lots of metronome work. I mean, just w- both teachers stressed practicing with a metronome. Yeah. And I'm glad they did because, you know, three, four years down the line when I had recording sessions and I had to play to a click track, it was, it was, it was very simple for me because every exercise I've, I practiced, I, I worked with a metronome. Right. Right. And, um, and I, but I just could never attain that sense of, or that quality of sound that those gentlemen, uh, presented week in and week out at their lessons. I mean, just the strength of sound, confidence, balance, and just swing. Yeah. Yep. Just, inc- just incredible. <laughs> and, and that's why I continue to practice right. today. I'm still <laughs> playing and practicing because I still can hear uh, deficiencies mm-hmm. in, in my own playing. I can hear it when I'm practicing. I can hear it back when I record a live performance with my own group or other groups I play with or on on a recording that I, that I would do for, for another leader, I'll, I'll hear deficiencies and I, I need to work on those things. Very specific right. things. Right. So, um, I was, uh, doing, doing another interview, uh, recently with, um, I can't remember who it was. I'll, I'll remember who it was, but he was saying like the older you get, the more you mature as a musician, the smaller, the steps of improvement are. 
Um, because like as a, as a younger musician, you're kind of, you know, if you're, if you're practicing every day, you're generally making big leaps and bounds in a, in a short amount of time. And, uh, you know, the, the older we get, the more, the more incremental and subtle all those improvements are. Um, and it can, it can kind of make practicing a little more, <laughs> a little more tedious, a little less, uh, reward to work ratio. Um, yeah. And, and I think I was, I was lucky to have those teachers, uh, you know, Ed and Morello, um, at the right time in my development. I was, you know, 18, 19, very impressionable, was, was gigging, but didn't have a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. in my life at the point. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have two kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any of those things. I just had like, I had my parents and my siblings at home and I had some chores and I had my drums. That's, right. that's it. Right. And so I, I worked on, I worked on these specific, uh, fundamental foundational, uh, concepts. And so I, I, I really, I mean, and, and this is, you know, something that you've heard from probably every person you've interviewed for your show, but you know, it's the foundation of your house, mm-hmm. you know, your, your sound, your touch, the way you hold the stick, the way you address the instrument. That's the foundation of your house. That's the mechanics. That's the ying. Right. The, the yang is the concepts uh, in which when you play with other instrumentalists, when you're playing music with musicians, what are you bringing to inspire the other instrumentalists? For example, if, if, you, if you're coming from a big band background, which was my case, you know, listening to drummers like, you know, Ed Shaughnessy on The Tonight Show, going to hear Buddy Rich when I was, you know, eight, nine years old for the first time, you know, so coming from a real heavy big band oriented education in jazz, but then having the experience or not having the experience to playing with a tenor player that maybe was really influenced by John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't listen to a lot of John Coltrane quartet with Elvin Jones, uh, well, you're not going to have that concept uh, of what to do, even though you have all the tools, you have the foundation, you have the hands, you have the feet, you have the balance, you have the coordination, you have the time. But if you don't have the concept through concentrated listening, then you're not going to know what to do with those tools. Right, right. And so I think what I try to stress in my own practicing and with my students is spend time every day working on your fundamentals, working on your mechanics. But take that same amount of time. If you have an hour, spend 30 minutes on mechanics and spend 30 minutes on concept. Mm. What do you want to play? What do you envision? What, what do you love to play? What's home base for you? Yeah. Is it small group jazz? Is it big band? Is it, you know, Chris Daddy Dave? Is it some of these more modern players? Yeah. You know, what do you, what do you see yourself doing? Mm-hmm. And whatever music you want to play, go for it. Yeah. Go, you know go 110% at it, you know, and, and learn as much about that style from the musicians that are making that music happen today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most, most of those players, they, they too trace the lineage back on their own instruments. Right. And, and, and in my case, I mean, a lot of the musicians I play with, they're also great drummers, even though they play great piano or, or play great bass or play great tenor, they can also sit down behind the drums. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
Interesting. It's it's maddening how some people can do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. So at the at the time you're doing all this physical work with with Soph and Morello, um, uh, like, are you already kind of have you already kind of pointed yourself in the direction of of jazz drumming and and you know focusing on big band, um, or did that did that focus come later? I th- you know again those types of gigs I stumbled on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really have. I didn't have that clear path where I, I was going to move to New York and I was going to play jazz or I was going to move to New York and be a Broadway drummer. I was going to move to a city and, and tour. Right. Um, I just, I didn't know how to connect the dots. I think it's easier today perhaps to connect the dots with, with the way information flows mm-hmm. and how shows like this occur and how drummers are more accessible. Mm-hmm. It seems, mm-hmm. um, and there's and there's strong regional pockets of of playing and energy where, you know, I think some of your listeners might, you know, hear this and say, wow, well, maybe there's a really cool scene in Philly and D.C. I'll, maybe maybe I'll think of that as perhaps a city that I would want to move to. That's in one of the to, reasons uh, we addition to Nashville. It's one of the reasons we do this podcast is is to focus on cities other than New York, L.A. and Nashville and, and really highlight the scenes and the players um, that are that are in those uh, regions because I mean I, I'm a perfect example. I moved to Atlanta a year and a half ago, really not knowing a whole lot about about the scene and the players here. But it's proven to be, um, in in my opinion, every bit as high quality as what's going on in L.A. It's not as deep, you know, the bench isn't as deep as it is in L.A. But I lived in Kansas City for seven years. It's a world class jazz town. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's actually part of the reason I wanted to talk to you because I know you kind of work this this region, this northeastern region that's not New York, um, and uh, specific, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, how how did you start to connect the dots when you're making the transition from being a student, uh, you know, kind of working on your craft and getting ready to being out on your own and right. having to make rent? Well, you know, it's it's like there's this collage that's always like kind of running through my mind and it's this experience of being around other people. So you can't help, but think back to where you come from. Mm-hmm. I hope hopefully, you know, hopefully you always remember your roots and where you come from. And, you know, I like to consider myself a, a strong family man. Mm-hmm. I, my wife and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary and I had, I have two children and my oldest son is studying with Danny Gottlieb at university of North Florida and he's wow. tying it up. He's an incredible, incredible drummer. Cool. And, um, you'll be hearing about him. He's really playing his ass off. <laughs> um, but you know, again, growing up and my father, like instilling this mindset where you have to take care of your family and you've got to be able to pay for, you know, you got to pay your rent. You got to put food on the table, you know, that sort of mindset that's that's home base for me mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm i was always thinking of ways of you know being able to support my family while playing drums and and, and making a good living while playing drums but still being with my family mm-hmm. you know not, not being away for you know 50 weeks out of the year right touring and right. so but i i loved all kind of music i mean People, people maybe know of me as, you know, an educator because of my uh, column in, in Modern Drummer or in Teaching Music Magazine 
or the books I've written or the work with the Army Blues as a big band drummer. And I love playing big band, but, you know, I, I, I also love pop and rock roll and 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 funk and and all these other styles because that's really what i started playing in the 70s right right and and so because i love all types of music if someone calls me to play i'll take the gig whether Mm -hmm. it's whether it's a pops orchestra gig you know playing with baltimore symphony or playing with maureen mcgovern touring with her or or whatever it is a show i mean to me it doesn't doesn't really matter so i I always kept all uh, environments, musical environments open. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wasn't really picky, I guess. I just, I wasn't really, I wasn't really all that, um, you know, I guess picky or selective about, um, or headstrong might be a better word. Yeah. I wasn't really headstrong about, I'm going to be a jazz musician. Right, right. You know, and, and not that, not that that's good or bad. It's just, that's just my personality. It's not that I'm eager to please. It's mm-hmm. just, I love all kinds of music. So when I, I was in college, I finished my degree in music education. All of my friends were going on for a master's. So I too applied at uh, university of Miami and university of North Texas. And I received a teaching assistantship at university of North Texas. So mm-hmm. I start my master's at North Texas I'm in the orchestral division and I'm teaching 20 freshman snare drum students. (laughs) I'm assisting a percussion methods class. And all I really want to be doing is playing in one of the big bands. Right. Which there are probably, I don't know, at the time there was 150 percussion majors at North Texas. Wow. And I don't know, it was probably 12 big bands, one for every hour. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't make any bands. Hmm. I auditioned, but I didn't make a single. And it was the first time I I auditioned where I didn't make a band, Mm -hmm. which was crushing, (laughs) which was was absolutely crushing. And two, it was the first time I auditioned for a band where there wasn't a band. The audition was the percussion panel. Uh, Well, it was the drum set teachers, right? It was, there was, there were three drum set teachers and Ed was the point guard. Right. And, and I came in like, Everyone else, it was like a cattle call audition, whoever wanted to audition for the bands. And uh, there was a drum chart, a big band chart on the stand, no band, and you played it. Mm-hmm. And I never did that before. I mean, I just never had that experience of playing a chart without a band. Right. And I completely folded <laughs> because I didn't have the experience. Mm-hmm. And But, man, was I crushed. I thought, like, I thought, like the world came to an end mm. because I was – school and i i wasn't playing with a big band i really wanted to be because i was playing in the top big band at school as an undergrad and you know i just felt like man this is such a drag even though i was there as an orchestral major Hmm. yeah you know because i couldn't afford to go there any other way right and um so that was a factor but i think it's important to have a failure like that yeah at a young age yeah if you're if you fail if you have a strong failure like that an experience like that at a very young age it sticks with you and you're always prepared from there on out mm-hmm. moving forward you you prepare you prepare you prepare you prepare for the unexpected because mm-hmm. you just don't know what you're going to actually run into and 
And that preparation gives you more confidence. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So I'm at North Texas, and I'm meeting all these great drummers, and they come out of the woodwork, and all these, these incredible incredible players, mm-hmm. orchestral and jazz drummers. And I start reading the bulletin boards in the hallway outside of the percussion room door of all these job openings. And one of the job openings was with one of the special military bands here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And the, U- the unit was the U S army field band. And, uh, uh, you know, it's an army band that, is comprised of a concert band, a chorus, a funk band, and a jazz ensemble. Mm-hmm. And this particular opening was with the funk band, show band. And um, one of, well, earlier, 20 years earlier, Steve Gadd was in this band. Yeah. In Vietnam. Yeah. He, he was in the army. He was in the army field band from 1967 to 1970. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of incredible musicians that were in the special bands here in Washington during that time because of the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these musicians would come cause they knew they had a low draft number. They would come to DC and they would audition for these bands. And if they made the band, then they stayed stateside and they played concerts right. or perhaps did USO tours. Right. And, uh, so I auditioned, I sent a recording in while I was at North Texas and I was, the recording was accepted and I was invited for a live audition and, and I won, I won this position with this, with this group. And this would have been November of 90. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I joined this unit, this, this band, um, in January of 91. And I left for basic training the, the first full day of the, the Gulf war. Right. I was going to say, so, this was like right around, uh, Right around that time. (laughs) Desert Storm. Yeah. So, yeah. So the war started like the evening of January 16th was when, you know, bombs were dropping all over Iraq. And so the next morning I leave for basic training and uh, all of my drill sergeants had me convinced that I was going to Iraq and I wasn't going to the band. And, And it was it was like completely nerve wracking. It was it was like eight weeks of. Utter hell. Oh, God. <laughs> no, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty incredible. No drumming at all. Um, right, right. Uh, obviously. But um, but it was, you know, it was a good experience, you know. I mean, again, I think all of these experiences in one shape or another, one form or another, influence the way you play. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I left school. I did a semester at North Texas. 
um, I was burnt out from school, from being in school as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I probably should have taken a break, just maybe went on a cruise ship or played at an amusement park or moved to a city and starved and tried to play right. um, or, or something. Uh, not go off to college again and get another degree because right. Morello would always say to Morello would say to, to me in lessons, he would say, all right, so you're finishing your degree. Now, what are you going to do? Hmm. And I said, well, I'm going to start my master's. I'm going to go to North Texas. He said, oh, that's great. Great. I'll write your recommendation letter. What about after you finish your, with your master's, what are you going to do? I said, well, maybe I'll go off for a doctor. He goes, oh, that's great. You'll be a doctor. That's fantastic. Could you take my pulse? Uh, and then then he'd say all right now you have your doctor what are you going to do then and then i said well then i'm going to play he said you don't need a piece of paper to tell you how to play Mm -hmm. you can play now i'm telling you you can play now go play right but but again i didn't have the confidence then i just didn't have the confidence to just do it he did he moved to new york in 1952 started you know in a very short time he started working with marion mcpartland's group at the uh at the Hickory House with Bill Crow and that great trio. He was right. working, you know, six six nights a week. And then yep. all these great musicians came in. Paul Desmond and Dave Rubeck were two of them. And that's how he ended up with uh, with the Dave Rubeck Quartet. And, uh, you know, I mean, I would like to think of music in those romantic terms. But for me, it's been a rocky road. And in all aspects, from learning new exercises to applying new concepts to getting and keeping gigs, mm-hmm. you know, like extended gigs, you know, knock on wood, I've never been fired from a band, but, um, and I'm grateful for that, but mm-hmm. it's just, to me, it's like, it takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of hard work. This Business of music, Peter Erskine told me this once, this business of music is not a sprint. It's a long distance marathon. And he's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. And he's playing better than ever. And he's putting out some of the, the best educational material he's ever put out. Right. And, 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 and he's still inspiring musicians like myself and, and musicians a generation younger than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's been at it for 45 years. Yeah, yeah. And That's like, incredible. Like you said, it's, it's easy to romanticize a, a career in music, um, but it, it sounds like from an early age, like before you even you know, were, were seriously training to be a professional musician, you were of a mindset that this is – uh, you were you were very workmanlike about it. You didn't have illusions of yeah. uh, you know a rock star lifestyle. You were like, I'm going to make a living at this. Yeah, I mean, if I could make a living at it, I felt like I was blessed. And, right. And I feel, and I, I here I am, you know, 30 years later, and I, I'm making a living, and I've been making a living at it, and I feel blessed uh, that I've been able to. But in part, that's just from my upbringing and my training and my my willingness to not say no to any gig I get called to do. Right. Right. And, and some younger, some younger, some younger musicians or some students that I have will refuse to take gigs unless they know what they pay Mm. or they won't take a gig if, if it doesn't pay anything. And you know, uh, how else are you going to get the experience? You need to play with other musicians. You don't know what musicians you're going to meet on that gig. You don't know what you're going to learn by playing with those musicians. Mm-hmm. So 
money, that should be the last thing on your mind when you're trying to develop. If you really care about the art form of music making and drumming, then the last thing on your mind should be compensation, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but then how do you, you know, square so, that? How do you square that with your desire to like, you know, provide for your family? And, and, uh, was, was there, was there a point when those two things sort of collided and, and there was a reckoning? Yeah. Well, they intersected. Yeah, they intersected. Well, because I joined, I joined the military and that's the largest employer of musicians in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is weird. It's weird to yeah. think that. Yeah. Because no one maybe, no one really equates the military with music mm -hmm. oxymoron right really but it's true there's you know probably a hundred army bands yeah around around the world somewhere in that in that in that vicinity and there's air force bands and navy bands and marine bands and coast guard and so the, the department of defense employs musicians it's not for everybody right but either is either is moving to California or Nashville or New York. It's right. not for everybody, right? You know, and so uh, I joined the military. Uh, I'm I'm touring with this with this funk band. It's a five piece funk band, and we're touring. We're playing state fairs, and we're playing uh, high schools and colleges, and we're on the road about a hundred days a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the military. I'm, active duty army so i'm in this institution yeah and so with any institutional job comes benefits you know it doesn't matter if you're in the army or if you're teaching full-time as a high school band director or as a college professor you're with an institution and if you're with an institution and you and you're lucky enough to have those types of benefits and a steady paycheck then that gives you the freedom and ability to do a other creative mix right and and that really for me that's been my thought that gig first with the army field band and then with the army band pershing zone uh at fort meyer virginia station on arlington national cemetery wow i've been there since 1996 and, and just retired uh, on the first of august wow just last week just yeah. last week after 20 26 and a half years man um it's been a long career but it's been steady, mm -hmm. and uh, I've gotten the opportunity to play with great musicians on a weekly basis, musicians that write their own music, that arrange their own, uh, their own compositions for the instrumentation of that group, whether it was a quartet, quintet, sextet, octet, 17-piece big band. Mm -hmm. um, played with a lot of guest artists over, over the course of my years with, with – uh, with the blues from Doc Severinsen to James Moody to Conrad Her Herwig, Terrell Stafford, Tim Warfield, uh, you know, just a laundry list of, of, of great jazz musicians yeah. learning their music for specific concerts. Got to tour with those groups um, and had the flexibility to teach at University of Maryland, teach at Temple University, write my own music write for Modern Drummer, write for Mel Bay and Alford. So just maximizing, uh, some might say, micromanaging your time. Right, 
Right. And this away is something, from away from that, away it, from the institution, you know, because this is something I wanted to still, ask you about, because like I, I think the perception of military bands is is that if, if you play in a military band, you're you're just in uniform 24 yeah. seven married to the military, you know, uh, and that's that's your life. But, it you know, from talking to you and I also talked to uh, uh, Wes Anderson, who's the, the drummer for Jazz Ambassadors. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, we talked about that gig some, I mean, he's relatively new to that gig. So, um, you know, didn't have, didn't have 26 years in it like you, but it, it sounds like, you know, a, a military band job does allow for a non-military life, um, to the extent that you want to make it happen. Yeah. You know, and it's up to the individual. There are, there are, uh, folks that I've served with over the years that, have played with the band and that's primarily what they've done. They just, they do their gig, they do it well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's it. They have no other interests with, with either playing with other groups on the outside of the band, outside of the military or, you know, starting their own group or teaching or what have you. They, they get their fill playing with that military band mm-hmm. and, you know, to each his own. Right. For me, for me, I, I look at it as I learn and have learned a lot from playing with these musicians, but the experiences that I get from my students, the experiences that I get from working with other instrumentalists on the outside uh, of the military, those experiences I can bring back to the band mm-hmm. and have a di- and have a different perspective. I always looked at it as. I want to keep one foot in the military stream and one foot in the civilian sector stream so that I maintain a sense of competency, a sense of um, making sure that I'm current. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you're, if, if you, if you get stuck in an institutional mindset, then you may not stay current. Mm -hmm. Some may, some may not, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know, but Certainly through the years of teaching and being around young, inspired players, that has been motivation enough for me. If I hear some kid come in and they're just playing the snot out of the drums and then they pick up the bass and the piano also and play the snot out of that. <laughs> if that doesn't if that doesn't if that doesn't fire fire you up, then you better you better move into another vocation altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me it's like the institutional thing took care of my being in the institution, being in the military, uh, fond memories of playing with the band for that many years, great experiences. And it took care of my family. Yeah. And for me, family, for me, family comes first, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and to have those experiences and to have that stability gave me the peace of mind to move on and, do other projects, whether they were solo recording projects or book projects or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so now that you're retiring from the military after 26 years, I mean, you talked about having one foot in the military stream and one foot in the civilian stream. And, uh, what is your, what is your mindset about now having both feet in the, in the civilian stream? Uh, you know, it doesn't really feel all that different mm. because I was able to, maintain a sense of uh, of contact with the outside world musically so mm-hmm. i had 
I've had these circles of contacts, whether they're in you know D.C. or Baltimore or Philly or New York. So I have these little circles. I like to think of them as of contact uh, of musicians. And you know, now that I'm out, I'll just contact these players and say, "Look, I'm I'm available whenever you need me." And mm-hmm. There's no con- there's no longer any conflicts with the military. I'm retired. You know, if you need me to go out and do a week tour or two weeks or any recording sessions, any kinds of gigs whatsoever, you know, if you need me, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it was I think it's been an easier transition for me because I bet I I was so active for those many all those years while still maintaining a sense of my my duties to the band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I was just like 110 percent just doing all the military stuff and not maintaining a presence in the civilian sector, the transition would have been a lot harder. Right. Right. Um, but I'm still writing. I'm still writing for Modern Drummer. I'm still writing for Teaching Music Magazine. I'm still writing tunes for an upcoming uh, record date next year that I'm going to put together in New York. My third solo record uh, on, on Positone Records. Um, first was Heads Up in 2014. 2016 was Allied Forces. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I think I've got seven or eight new compositions for this record already done in the can written. And, and you've, um, you've written, and I've also been applying, I've been applying for full-time teaching positions too. I um, recently applied for a full-time position at uh, Santa Clara university in uh, Santa Clara, California, which I, I won that job as a director of jazz studies job, but being a super commuter from Maryland, yeah. uh, didn't bode well yeah. for the, uh, for the Dean. So that didn't work. Right. Um, right. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'd like to eventually uh, transition to maybe a full-time teaching position, perhaps if, if it were to work out. If not, that's okay too. Right, right. And I think things things happen things happen for a reason. Right, and I mean, it's it's interesting talking about you know sort of maintaining um, uh, relevance and staying current in um, you know whatever is outside of your regular gig. Uh, and and the immediate parallel I thought of was. Um, playing at Disneyland, which I did for four years when I lived in LA. Um, But what I found was that, you know, like, like a military gig, it provided a lot of stability and a lot of consistency. Um, And I was, you know, some, some people just like do the Disney gig. Like you said, they do that gig, they do it well, they go home, they're, they're happy with that. And other people uh, really stay hungry outside of that gig to make other things happen, to advance their playing and their career outside the park, as we used to say. Um, and I was somewhere in the middle. Like I, I could feel that Disney paycheck just kind of making me a little bit complacent um, because that, you know, that's my primary motivator. I, I, I think about money very emotionally. So if I'm financially stable, I'm emotionally stable and I don't have that kind of urgency to go make shit happen. Um yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it ebbed and flowed. It was a, it was a challenge for me to kind of, you know, go out and hear my friends play or go out to jam sessions or make other gigs happen. And I did to an extent, but, um, it was always in the back of my mind. Like if this gig goes away for some reason, it's going to be a lot of legwork and a lot of heavy lifting to kind of get other things going. And fortunately our move to Atlanta, um, you know, just negated that whole scenario. Um, but what were did it did it ebb and flow with you when you were in the military? Were there times when you were just kind of all in with the uh, with the army band and had to forsake outside life? 
Well, you know, the first the first unit I was in, the first five years I was in the military, I was touring 100, 110 days a year. Mm-hmm. So that was with the Army Field Band. That's the same unit you mentioned, Wes. Mm-hmm. That's the same unit he's in. He's he's in the 17 piece big band. I was in the funk show band. Right. You know, 20 years apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the same uh, mission, if you will. Right. You know, touring, touring across the United States, essentially taking music and the military message to the grassroots of America is what we used to say. Right. And that particular band, uh, in terms of time constraints, uh, demanded more of the individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, So being on the road 100, 110 days a year and then being in and rehearsing, you know, five days a week unless you were playing a concert that evening, your time is pretty much tied up. If mm-hmm. you're limited in terms of what you can do to generate, you know, outside work, at least for me at that time in the early nineties, it may be different now. Mm-hmm. It may be different now, but, um, in the army band Pershing's stationed at Fort Myer, Virginia, on Arlington National Cemetery, the unit is twice the size. There's about 250 musicians in that band. Hmm. And, um, you know, we have a ceremonial band and a concert band and the orchestra, a chorus, uh, a funk band, and then the Army Blues, a 17-piece big band. So there's more instrumentalists to do the mission, which allows a, a little bit more free time. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not, and and our main mission isn't touring. Our main mission is performing throughout the military district of Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, performing at the at the Pentagon, performing at the Vice President's house, performing at the White House. I've I've played for every president dating back to Bill Clinton. Hmm. I've marched in every inaugural since Clinton's first inauguration. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that number of musicians, the resources that that band has, the band at Fort Myer. Uh, the band I just retired from allowed me to be motivated and do other, do other projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but again, it, you know, it, it all depends on the individual. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm just trying to improve as, as a person and trying to improve as a person and as a musician, that's really all I'm trying to do. Right. Right. And to go back to, you know, your, I, I mean, to go back to what you originally said about, you know, being like in your late teens and thinking about moving to New York or thinking about moving to, to LA, it, it sounded like you were more interested in just cultivating your musical sensibility and your musical skill and, and less concerned mm-hmm. with like, you know, throwing yourself out there to compete with the biggest, baddest cats. Um, yeah. And it sounds like that's, that's still in there. Like you're at this, you're at this new chapter of your life and, and still looking for ways to, to hone your, uh, you know, yourself as a musician. Yeah, that, that seed was instilled with my with my parents from the very very young age. My dad would all say, "Look, you know, music is like a ladder. Mm-hmm. Rungs on a ladder. You're on this rung, but there's always someone on the rung above you that's playing better than you are. Mm-hmm. And there's always someone on a rung of the list below you tugging on your pants, mm-hmm. trying to get past you. So you always have to keep working. And he and he." And he instilled education. You know, the more education you have, the better off you're going to be. You may not think you need it now, but you will use it at one point in your life. And 
I was the first person in my family with a college degree. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he, he was very proud of that. And so if I wanted to take lessons in New York with the best drummers, you know, whether it was, and so uh, Joe Morello, eventually it became Kim Plainfield at Drummers Collective. Mm -hmm. Then it became John Riley, you know, and Manhattan School Music studying with him. I, I always had this burning desire to study with the best because I wanted, first of all, I wanted to get, I wanted to gauge my progress. I wanted to gauge where I was in reference to their students, mm -hmm. into that teacher's students, into that teacher's stable of students. How did I compare? Right. Right. How did I compare? And two, how could they help me? Mm -hmm. How could they help me get better? Maybe, maybe they can recommend me for a gig. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of my, that was always my mindset. I always thought about it in those terms. And so, and when I was at North Texas, when I told a few of my friends that I was auditioning for the army band in Washington, they thought I had rocks in my head. <laughs> They said, you're crazy. You're going to join the military? <laughs> um, like, well, I said, I don't, I don't know. I said, my, my, my dad, my dad was in the military. My dad was a Korean war veteran. Um, you know, he had good experiences and I had uncles that, that were in the military and one uncle that, that died in Vietnam, you know? And so mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, I, I come from this lineage of, of family members that served and, uh, the premise and the concept seemed like it was a good idea and it, it turned out to be a great idea for me. Right. And it sounds like your peers, like your peers associated with the military with an entire lifestyle or an entire ethos. Yeah. Whereas you just thought of it as a, a job that a musician can do. Yeah. Because I had, I had a, I had a teacher or two that, that were in the mm -hmm. military. Like Joe was in Massachusetts state guard before it turned into the national guard. Uh -huh. So he joined because he wanted to play. Right. And then they found out that he had sight issues and he was legally blind in one eye. So they, they wouldn't allow him to serve any longer, but he thought it was. He did some marching, played some drum sets. So he was doing that in the Massachusetts state guard. Mm -hmm. And then I had a teacher who, uh, played with, he was the, um, the drummer for, Connie Francis in the fifties and he started fives drums. Huh. He invented fives drums. His name was Bob Grosso and Bob Grosso was one of the first drummers in the airman of note hmm. in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the one who, he was the one who told me, he said, look, he said, if you can get in one of the bands in DC, you know how you play gig now, Steve, where you'll put on a tuxedo and go play the gig and then come home and take your tuxedo off and get paid. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, he said, in the military, you'll put on a uniform and do the same thing, and you'll get a full-time paycheck and benefits. Mm -hmm. If you can get into one of those bands, do it. Yeah. And so I always listen to older musicians mm -hmm. because I just figured they were older and wiser. Mm -hmm. You know, They have more experience, i.e. they've made more mistakes than I did at the time. And so uh, when I heard about this, these openings, I, I took advantage, and I, and I auditioned. And that was a national audition. That The Army Field Band audition was a national audition i won that five young blues there was uh, 60 tapes for that job yeah and they invited 12 of us live and we we played live over uh, over the course of one full day we all played and, and i won that job so the more you know from auditioning and taking these auditions and preparing the music you learn yeah but if you're closed-minded to it you're not going to learn anything because you're not going to audition and you're not going to learn the music you're not you're not going to better yourself right if you're closed-minded to it 
And it's funny because some of those friends in North Texas that thought I had rocks on my head for auditioning for the military about three or four years later auditioned for the military and ended up serving. Anyway, right, right. Whether it be in the Air Force or in the Navy, they ended up doing a, uh, an entire career themselves. Yeah, yeah. I uh, auditioned for I auditioned for the Airmen of Note about twelve years ago. I was still in grad school, um, and cool. like you, you know, I sent in uh, I sent in the CD and then made it to the to the live round of auditions and flew into flew yeah. into DC and played with the band there. Um, and I I did all this great. I, I did all this not being a hundred percent sure if I really wanted to be in the military or if I really wanted to be in a military band. But um, my uh, I, Bobby Watson ran the jazz department at University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I was, and and he and and some other people encouraged me like just go do the audition. Whatever happens, huh. it's it's going to be a positive experience. You're going to learn from it. You know, if you end up getting the gig, then you can you know really decide whether or not the military is for you. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole process of like just you know it was kind of the first time I had traveled. Um, on my own for music because up until that point I had kind of led a more sheltered uh, academic musical existence um, you know but all of a sudden like most was, of us right right all of a sudden like it was on me to you know buy a plane ticket get myself to the airport get myself to the base you know get my outfit together make sure I was prepared and and yeah. uh, you know I, I didn't end up getting the gig obviously but um, I still think back on that as as kind of uh, my, uh, you know, an early experience in adulting <laughs> that kind of, yeah. you know, helped me get my shit together. With, yeah, without for, a doubt. For future, uh, and future everything, and, opportunities. and everything you learn, every, everything you learn from that experience too. You still carry that. Yeah. With you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the, the next time you audition, you're going to remember the positive attributes from that experience and the things you could have improved upon. Right. Right. Uh, and and so every audition. Is it, it, every audition or every job interview you take, you, you learn something about the process. You learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about self awareness, really, because each of us have our own special gifts, our own issues, mm-hmm. and we're all individuals. We're all trying to work through those issues and try to get better and improve and be the best you could possibly be. Yeah, I and mean, that's all we can hope for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish you the the best of luck in this uh, this next chapter of your life. I'm Thank sure you, you're Zach. gonna you're gonna continue to be a a, a a guru for a lot of people, both in person and in print. I appreciate that. I mean, it's been a an honor and a privilege to meet you and, and to uh, to be on your show. And uh, I hope that some of the information that we talked about and some of the information I disseminated in the interview will help your listeners. Surely, that's, that's Surely. what we're here. That's what we're here to do. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for talking, man. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. Thanks to Steve for sharing his story with us. Uh, There was really a lot of experience, a lot of insight, and a lot of self-awareness from him there. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on social media. Share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing and hearing what everyone is up to out there. It seems like cats are staying busy with all kinds of different projects, so keep it up, y'all. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Hope you'll join Matt Krause next week, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.